everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we are here as usual with just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast where we rate and review your favorite species of animals, giving them a score out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, so those ratings might not count for much, but we have fun with it. (laughs) We do a lot of research to make sure that our opinions are at least a little bit founded. Yeah, and we try to make sure those those sources of the research are good and proper. And trustworthy. That's the word. There you go. We got there together. <laughs> so it's been a little while since we recorded a regular episode, you and I, because our last episode together was our Q&A episode to celebrate our first podcast anniversary. Yes. So this week we're back in the saddle with a regular animal episode, and I believe that this week it's my turn to go first. Yes, it is. And I'm excited because this is a good one. I mean, that's not to say that they're not always good ones. Mm. They're all good animals. (laughs) Our scores would say otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I'm talking about the Texas horned lizard. Okay. Scientific name, Phrynosoma cornutum. That's kind of a cool name, right? That's a Harry Potter spell. (laughs) Surely. (laughs) The species was submitted by Alex Emery, Vikram Baliga, and Bo Gant. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, thanks, y'all, for this really good suggestion. This is a cool animal. And I'm getting my information from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, and finally, our best friends, Animal Diversity Web. Very fun. Yes, very good. So this lizard is about three and a half to five inches long. For metric listeners, that's nine to 13 centimeters. Mm -hmm. It's not that big. Smaller than an anole. They actually have a really short little tail. Mm -hmm. Their tail is kind of almost nubby. Okay. Yeah. So short tail, but kind of a squat body. Mm Mm-hmm. You will find them in hot, sandy deserts all throughout the south-central United States and even in northern Mexico. Wow. Yeah, so they have a pretty broad range. The taxonomic family that they're from is called Phrynosomatinae. This is a really diverse family of lizards. There are more than 120 species, including 22 species of these horned lizards. So the Texas horned lizard is not the only one. There's actually lots of them. There's okay. 22 different ones. And horned lizards are the ones that are referred to as horny toads. Oh, okay. So horny toad refers to a particular species? Is that what you said? Texas horned lizard uh-huh. is the common name for this one specific species. Okay. There are 22 other species that are known as horny toads. Oh, okay. So it's the opposite of what I said. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you had it exactly wrong. Got it. So, <laughs> and they're called horny toads because the shape of their body looks very toad-like rather than lizard-like. I think when, that when you think of the shape of a lizard, you think of something that is kind mm-hmm. of long and snake-like except with legs maybe, right? Mm. They're not like that at all. Their bodies are flat and squat. I think they're shaped a bit like a really puffy pancake if the pancake had spikes for a topping. Like if you just sprinkled (laughs) little pointy spikes, like those little sand spurs. (laughs) If you just sprinkled those on top of your pancake, that's what this little dude looks like. Call that an angry stack. (laughs) (laughs) Denny's introducing their new spicy stack. (laughs) I mentioned that their tail is short. It is also pretty thin, but it has this like 
bit of chunk at the very base of the tail. Okay. So the tail like starts off really fat, but it very quickly tapers to a sharp little point. Hmm. And they're really identifiable by these really menacing looking spikes. The the spikes grow all over their body. And particularly they have these big spikes on the back of their head, which is how you can tell them apart from other horned lizards. Okay. They're very, very pointy. Pointy cool. little lizard. That's kind of your intro to the Texas horned lizard. I'm going to get into my ratings for this little guy. And our first category that we rate animals on is effectiveness. If this is your first time listening to us, effectiveness we define as physical adaptations that let an animal do a really good job of the things that it's supposed to be doing. So things built into the body that let it conquer obstacles in its way or survive adversity. So for effectiveness, I'm giving the Texas horned lizard an eight out of 10. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. So first of all, they have a sticky tongue that lets them pick up harvester ants, which is what they eat. They eat mostly ants. They got a sticky little tongue and they just slap them right up. Uh, Second of all is their camouflage. They have this gray brown coloration and it's kind of mottled looking and it blends in really well with the sandy desert ground that they live in. So it's kind of hard to see them. And then of course, you know, the first thing you notice when you look at them is that they're covered in these spiky horns. So the spiky horns make them more difficult to eat by these smaller predators that would go after them. So these are things like snakes or smaller birds, things that would normally make a meal out of a lizard, the horn. What the horns do is they actually pierce the throat of the animal. Isn't it too late though? Well, I mean, you would. You could make the same argument about like poisonous animals, yeah. right? That have to be eaten for the poison to take effect. That's true. It's like over time, you're going to figure out like if I eat that, I'm going to die. Also, it's just well, not pleasant. <laughs> it's just not pleasant. It's not a pleasant experience to eat. You know, okay, it's okay. just covered in all these little. Sp- it's like eating a bowl of sand spurs. Maybe it's the other birds and such that are watching. Like, oh my god, Frank just died. <laughs> Don't eat those, man. No, it's it's horrifying. So um, that's it's a pretty effective deterrent. Seems to work pretty well. So what's interesting about this actually is why I didn't give them a full 10 out of 10. Roadrunners have actually figured out a clever workaround for horned lizards in particular. Is it a fake tunnel? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's less um, artistic than that. Okay. The roadrunner picks up the lizard and beats it against a rock (laughs) and crushes the spikes. Ah, yes. Victory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the the roadrunner just kind of smacks it against a rock until all the spikes are crushed and then it eats the lizard. No problem. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So the roadrunner has kind of figured that one out. The feature that I think they're maybe most known for by people outside of the area where they live Mm -hmm. is a really unique one that they use as a last resort to startle predators. I think you probably know what it is. (laughs) I don't want to take that away from you. (laughs) They have these muscles Mm -hmm. surrounding the veins in what's called their ocular sinus, which is this sinus that's right underneath their eyeball. It's kind of between the eyeball and the socket. Okay. So there's veins running through there, and then they have these muscles surrounding those veins. The lizard can control these muscles and use them to kind of tense up, flex the muscles, and Mm -hmm. restrict the vein. This cuts off circulation of the blood back into the heart, 
but blood is still flowing into the eye. Uh-oh. Yeah, so all that blood is flowing in, but it can't flow out, so it builds up and builds up and builds up. So it increases the pressure in that vein, and then what they can do is squeeze the muscle quickly to burst the sinus membrane and squirt all that built-up blood out of the eye for a distance of up to four feet. (laughs) Yeah. Somehow knowing the specifics of how it works makes it worse. Oh, really? I thought that was so cool. As someone who has had many a sinus infection, (laughs) it seems like the worst outcome. They don't... This is definitely, like, not something that they're interested in doing often. Uh It You know, obviously, it's, like, stressful. But I did see that apparently they sometimes do this also to just get, like, debris out of their eye. (laughs) Like, if they just have, like, gunk in their eye, they'll just, pss, pss, like, Crazy. do a quick little squirt <laughs> to get stuff out of there. Well, apparently, so this tactic of squirting blood out of your eye works very, very well on canids. So, like, coyotes, jackals, uh, foxes, things like that works really well on them. Huh. They hate it. They cannot stand it. They freak out and they run away. But... It doesn't work that well on birds. Birds really don't care. (laughs) You can squirt blood at them all day long. They really don't care. This is a sample. (laughs) But it it seems to be a pretty effective deterrent against more canid predators. Interesting. Yes. So very interesting, very unique little feature. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any other animal that does anything like this. And it has to make you wonder, because like, there's a lot of other animals that use chemical deterrence, right? Or something that they squirt out of their body to deter a predator, right? So like, we talked about the bombardier beetle that squirts like acid sure. out of its butt. And then there's like skunks that might shoot like a foul smelling liquid or something like that. But the blood from the eyeball, I think is really, that's a unique one. Yeah. Makes you wonder how that came about. Uh, like how that trait even evolved probably by accident (laughs) like one lizard just burst a blood vessel and started bleeding from their eye and the predator was weirded enough out by it that they let them live and just that trait somehow that has to be the only spot on the whole body where that would be useful there's just it's thinner right there between where those blood vessels and such are true true where that that membrane would be thin enough for you to be able to squirt out a stream that would puncture it because if that happened anywhere else you're just talking about internal bleeding or an aneurysm (laughs) (laughs) well it seems to be working out okay for them so far and it seems like they can recover from it very quickly so it's not the sort of thing that is necessarily causing a lot of harm to the lizard it's something that they're they're pretty good at doing. Huh. Yeah. It's not necessarily like dropping your tail, right? Where like it's very stressful. It's difficult to recover from. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that it's really not that big a deal for them. Okay. So yeah, that's pretty neat. The blood squirting. That's what a lot <laughs> of people I think know about this lizard. Mm-hmm. I did deduct some points for their very low mobility. They are not very fast. And they're kind of easy pickings for these larger predators with really keen eyesight. Like, um, so roadrunners, coyotes, like I mentioned, and particularly birds of prey Mm -hmm. can be pretty, you know, if they're big enough that the spikes don't necessarily bother them, they're kind kind of easy pickings. It's a good little snack. Okay. Yeah. So that's why I gave it an eight out of 10. I thought that was pretty cool. It is. 
Next up is ingenuity. And if this is your first time joining us, this is behavioral adaptations that let an animal maybe solve problems that it's encountering on a daily basis or figure out any sort of challenges in their way or do something clever behaviorally. And I give this lizard a 7 out of 10. Okay. It's okay for a lizard, right? Yeah. I think a lot of times lizards don't score too high in ingenuity, but this one's pretty good. In particular, I was looking at this one study that really caught my attention. The study is called Anti-Predator Responses by Texas Horned Lizards to Two Snake Taxa with Different Foraging and Subjugation Strategies. And this was done by Wade Sherbrooke in 2008. So the important thing about the study is that it captures the decision-making process that the lizard uses to decide which of their defensive strategies to use based on the type of threat that it's facing. So they have these two sort of evasion mechanisms. They have camouflage, where they just stay super still and hope that the predator can't see them mm -hmm. and just stay completely still until the threat has passed. Or they can try to escape. This is less ideal for them because they're very slow. Okay. So they have to think pretty quickly. They have to think on their feet to think about whether it's worth it to abandon their cover and make a run for it or if, if it's a better bet for them to just stay still and hide. Right. So what the study found was that when approached by a rattlesnake, which is a venomous ambush predator that doesn't rely on chasing its prey, it's going to wait for its prey to come close to it, the lizard will actually make a run for it because it knows right. the rattlesnake is probably not going to chase it. Right. So the lizard knows, okay, well, I'm not very fast, but that snake's not going to chase me, so I can probably get away with running. However, when they're approached by a whip snake, which is a fast-moving pursuer, the lizard instead stands its ground, flattens its body to kind of make it look more wide. And this is pretty cool. It turns its back towards the snake and like tilts it in such a way that it's kind of making like a spiky wall. I feel like I've seen this before in a documentary, perhaps. Maybe, probably. So it, it kind of turns its whole body into a shield. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it kind of makes itself look less appealing as a meal. So what this is really showing is that the lizard understands the predator and can differentiate between, like, this is a different type of snake, so, and this one will rely on different strategies to get me, so I have to change my tactic to get away from it. But they also know themselves well enough to know, like, I'm not a very good runner. I shouldn't run from something that's really good at running. Like, I, I can't outspeed this thing, so I have to come up with something else. Right. So I, I think they're pretty good at uh, knowing how to counter. <laughs> they're pretty good at countering their opponents. So another thing that's pretty cool is that when they are standing their ground, they can do a cool thing where they gulp in air to inflate their bodies. Oh. They're just it's straight. It's a page straight from the puffer fish book. <laughs> they just inflate their body into this little spiky ball that I think is kind of cool. And um, the last thing I wanted to include for their ingenuity is that, so I mentioned that they feed mostly on ants, but... I talked about this with the aardwolf that also eats ants. Mm. They will rotate between colonies that they're foraging at so as not to decimate the populations. So they're not like going to a colony and eating every single ant in the whole colony. They'll come and eat some, yeah. and then they'll move on to the next colony so that the colony has time to replenish its numbers. Yeah. So they're using some kind of moderation to hmm. like make sure that their food source is sustainable. Yeah, I was about to say it's a uh, sustainable hunting. 
basically. Right? I wish we could do that. <laughs> um, one thing, though, about their ingenuity, one thing that I docked them for is that, like many other lizards, their food has to be moving to get their attention. So they won't eat dead prey. Oh. Yeah. If something is dead and not moving, they will not even register it as food. Huh. Yeah. Which I think is like, I'm sure there's some reason for it, but I was thinking, I was like, that's an easy meal that you're passing up on. Mm. <laughs> like, that's, a, that's a meal you don't have to work for. You know, like might as well take it. This brings me to the final category for the Texas horned lizard. This is aesthetics. And for aesthetics, I give them a six out of 10. Okay. Their lowest score, but I mean, it's still, is that a passing grade? Six out of 10? Um... It's a D. <laughs> it's okay um very edgy their spikes especially on the back of their head remind me a lot of the gelled spiky hair that was kind of all the rage in like the early 2000s yeah you remember that mm-hmm. did you ever have your hair spiked like that yep you did with it, your curly hair it only worked at a very specific length really <laughs> what was length was that <laughs> pretty short <laughs> for people that don't know you you have very curly hair yes yeah, very so. long at the moment <laughs> so uh i took some points off of their aesthetics because there was a boy who was mean to me in the second grade who had spiky sandy brown hair and this lizard reminds me a lot of him so okay well I that's fair take some opinion points <laughs> off of that because i didn't like that kid <laughs> So finally, miscellaneous information for the Texas horned lizard. Their conservation status is of least concern. They have stable populations throughout the North American deserts. Um, they're just, they're doing okay. Awesome. They're doing good. The Texas horned lizard is the state reptile of Texas. Nice. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's right there in the name. I wonder what ours is. Alligator. <laughs> <laughs> I regretted what I said. I left my mouth. <laughs> as soon as I said that, I was like, were you joking? <laughs> but so what I thought was interesting was that I was like, state reptile? I've heard of like state animals and then I've heard of state birds, but I never heard of state reptile. So I looked that up a little bit and only 28 out of the 50 United States have state reptiles. But that makes more sense when you think about the fact that the states that do have state reptiles uh... are mostly in the South. And like the southeast and the southwest. One last question. Yeah, what's up? Is this the animal that one GIF is based off of? Or is <laughs> <laughs> yes, that one. Um, I know exactly which one you're talking about, but I don't know for sure. Okay. Probably though. It looks like it. Yeah, if you've ever seen that little reaction image of the lizard that's like got the major double chin and he's like, <laughs> that's exactly what this lizard looks it's, like. Is this or a bearded dragon? I'm not sure which one. You know, I always thought it was a bearded dragon before I really realized that just most desert lizards kind of look like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's not just them. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the Texas horned lizard. Well, cool. Thanks, babe. Thank you. Uh, Before we move on, I want to take a quick second to thank everybody on Patreon who is pitching us a couple bucks a month to support us and keep this show running. This month, I want to thank Jacob Jones, Kyle Rauch, April Kamik, Vikram Baliga, Brianna Feinberg, Sarah Peterson, Dalton Weeks, Brandon Everfolly, Megan Clark, Paul Chomo, The Jungle Gym Queen, and Christina Sanders. Thanks, everyone. All right, baby, that brings us to you and your highly anticipated animal. All right. So the animal I'm bringing this week came to us via social media poll. Very much so. It was between the sperm whale and humpback whale, and the winner 
was sperm whale. Excellent. Yes. And I just want to call out everybody (laughs) really quick because this vote was neck and neck for a long time. For like, usually we only keep the poll up for like a couple days, Mm -hmm. like maybe two days. This vote had to go up for three days because y'all couldn't act right. (laughs) And in the Facebook group, particularly where the results of the poll are visible before you click on your option, Mm -hmm. um, there was a coordinated effort to keep the vote (laughs) tied 50-50. Um, on Twitter, not the case. So Twitter got to decide that one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's basically the opposite of what happened with Rotten Tomatoes in Star Wars recently. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very niche reference, but I, know. I hope someone out there gets it. Somebody out there. You know there. what? If you do, at me. <laughs> I won't see it, but hey. <laughs> I think that the sperm whale was actually requested. It was. Um, it was also requested by Amy Pate. Thank you, Amy. And hey, Oliver. What's up? I'm getting my information from the NOAA Fisheries website, found at fisheries.noaa.gov, nationalgeographic.com, as well as the Smithsonian Ocean website, ocean.si.edu. So let's talk about the basic info of a sperm whale. Please. So I think for a lot of people, when you hear the word whale, there's a good chance that the sperm whale is what you're imagining. Other ones like that are that are very, I guess present in the media are the humpback whale, which is kind of why we chose these two to go up against each other, as well as the blue whale and, of course, the orca. For maybe our younger listeners, whales are mammals. They are warm-blooded. They require oxygen to breathe, and they cannot get it from ocean water like fish do. So they have to periodically return to the surface of the ocean and exhale the, the, the breath they had previously taken and inhale more air. They do that through the blowhole on top of their head. And they have live babies. Yes. They don't lay eggs. But this one is big. Very big. Oh, he's huge. Adult size ranges from 49 to 59 feet, or 15 to 18 meters, which is bigger than a school bus. And they weigh 35 to 45 tons, which is about 31 to 40 metric tons. Oof. This is the biggest animal we've talked about on the show, I'm pretty sure. Probably, yeah. Because we haven't talked about the blue whale. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> One of the reasons they're popular is because of where they're found. They're found in the entire world's oceans. Everywhere. Yes. We've all got sperm whales. Yep. So females and calves stay in tropical or subtropical waters, while males migrate to higher latitudes alone or in groups and travel towards the equator to mate. They're getting around. Yeah, they, they do some traveling. Um, talk about what they look like a little bit for those that maybe aren't so familiar with them. They have a grayish color, a very large head. It's very large, very long and, uh, thick is how I would put it. It's rectangular almost. almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got like a flat front to it, yep. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> it looks weird. It, it's very much like identifiable from other... They're, yeah, they're very differently shaped from other whales. So there's that. Their jaw is very different in that. Uh, so they're, they're a toothed whale. Their lower jaw is very narrow and has very long pointy teeth, which I'll talk about more here in a moment. This is as opposed to a baleen whale. Right. And their fins are not very big at all. Oh. (laughs) And their dorsal fin is also pretty small and rounded as compared to maybe an orca. Oh, yeah. It's it's just like a little nubby, right? Yeah. It's 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 barely there. It's like a bump. Yeah. Their scientific name is Physeter macrocephalus. Ooh, that's a cool name. Yes. Does that mean big head? It does. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's so rude. Why are scientists so rude when they name animals? <laughs> so, yeah, macrocephalus comes from the Greek word for big-headed, and physeter comes from the Greek, the Greek word for blowpipe or blowhole of a whale. Their common name comes from the word spermaceti, and that's the name given to the waxy substance that are found in their heads. Okay, so that noggin is just full of gunk. Yeah, more on that later. Uh, They belong to the taxonomic family Physoteridae, and in that family are the pygmy sperm whale and the dwarf sperm whale. Oh, little ones. Yeah. They make them in fun sizes. (laughs) I didn't look up any more information on on them, unfortunately. I'm assuming we can just take everything about this one and just scale it down. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Probably location specific, too. That's how biology works, right? Uh, Nine times out of ten. You just take it and then just scale it down. (laughs) I mentioned they're toothed whales. They're actually the largest of the toothed whales. So an orca is a toothed whale too, it right? Is. Like they just have teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Not a baleen when you think of like the the whale from Finding Nemo, how it had those bristly baleen teeth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to jump right into our first category, effectiveness. Very good. I'm going to give a full 10 out of 10. There we go. They're pretty good. <laughs> Coming through. <laughs> so first I want to talk about how they are deep divers. Okay. So their dives routinely reach depths of 2,000 feet or 610 meters and last for 45 minutes. But they're capable of diving over 10,000 feet or 3 kilometers for over 60 minutes. The latter reaches into the abyssal zone of the ocean. Where it's like super dark, right? Yes. Yes. But even then, the the normal depth is somewhere in the bathypelagic zone of the ocean. Okay. So still pretty dark. What are they doing down there? They are hunting. Oh, they're getting that. They're getting those spooky snacks. <laughs> yeah. Somewhat related to that, they're thought to use echolocation, which comes in handy in those depths because you're not really seeing anything. So talking about their long dives, so that takes a lot of energy, of course. And after they're done diving, they come to the surface to rest for about nine minutes. Their cruising speed is 23 miles per hour or 37 kilometers per hour. Leisurely. Yeah. (laughs) And earlier I mentioned the spermaceti. So this substance is what made them popular targets for whalers back in the 19th and 18th century. Okay. When whaling was at its peak. That substance could be used to make candles and oil for lanterns and that sort of thing. So that that was the primary value as uh, whaling targets. The purpose of the spermaceti isn't fully understood. Early sailors thought it was their sperm, hence the name. Ah, okay. I don't know why they thought that. Can't, can't think of any other animal where that is stored in the, the head region. <laughs> Sometimes you just run out of space. It's like one of those um, cars where they had the trunk space in the front of the car and the engine in the, the back. Frunk. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. It's a frunk. Uh, the spermaceti is theorized to be used for buoyancy. Um, where the whale being able to change it from liquid to solid, that changes the density, of course, and thus the overall buoyancy of the whale. Wow. Yeah. That's a theory, though. Um, it hasn't been proven. But that, that's the leading one. I guess how would you prove that, right? It's rough. Yeah. <laughs> They're not exactly observable. Their diet consists of fish and squid. So this is something I think that's very popular about the sperm whale because they're thought to do battle with the giant and colossal squids fairly often. And that's based on sucker mark scars that are found on their skin, particularly beached sperm whales. So you'll find these big sperm whales on a beach, dead of course, but then looking at their skin, you'll see these big sucker marks, which can only come from squids of that size. Wow. Yeah. Huh. 
They have giant squid hickeys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So based on that, and also we'll find the remains of these squid in the sperm whale's stomach, particularly their beaks, um, because that's the the less digestible part of the squid body. Sure, because squids don't necessarily have a skeleton that's going to be sticking around. Yeah, so that's kind of the best measurement they have to guess at how big a squid was, was based on the size of the beak. So that's theorized based on the sucker marks and the the remains found in their stomachs, but it's actually never been directly observed. Like no one's ever seen a sperm whale actually, you know, go for a giant squid. That's their relationship with the sperm whale. They're thought to be a popular prey item for them. And of course, part of the reason no one has seen this is because of the depths to which that battle would take place. <laughs> right. Like we wouldn't be able to see it anyway. They're not seeing each other either. So. Oh man, that's true. <laughs> They're just having to duke it out, and they can't see anything. <laughs> yep, probably, oh, that's pretty horrifying. Spooky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so moving on to ingenuity. I don't know. Let's give it a six out of ten. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I'll give them that is based on their social behaviors. So they stay in pods of fifteen to twenty individuals. Their females practice communal childcare, uh, and females and calves stay in groups, like I mentioned earlier. Whereas the males go off in what are called bachelor groups, mm-hmm. off to the, the higher latitudes and pretty cold water, actually. And then, of course, coming back to mate. And they communicate to each other through sound. Um, I've listened to a couple recordings. It's mostly clicks. Okay. Yeah. It's not like the ooh. No. Not that I've heard, at least. There was one theory. It's it's really just a theory that they use sound production to stun fish Huh. But there's no evidence to support that. Okay. Yeah. So that, I think that ties into a less popular idea of what the, the spermaceti is for, being uh, like an amplification, like an acoustic material of some sort. But there's just nothing really out there supporting it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I've seen other places, though, that suggest they'll make sounds to scare off predators. I think you actually showed me a video with uh, killer whales that yeah. were trying to attack sperm whales or mm-hmm. a sperm whale, maybe. And they were just, like, uh, blasting them with sound just to, like, get them to go away? Yeah, that was the concept, I suppose. Couldn't I'm... find anything in support of it, though. Sure. Yeah. Moving on to our final category of aesthetics, which I will give a 7 out of 10. Mm, you were kinder to them than I would have been. <laughs> They're a little unique and chunky. Unique and is a word, yeah. The word thud comes to mind. <laughs> 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 Not in any way that I could use it in a proper English sentence, but there it is. Uh, okay, maybe <laughs> with with their the front of their head being so flat uh-huh. and broad, maybe if they were to like run into the side of a ship or something, it'd be a great big thud. Maybe. Ugh. So, <laughs> seven out of ten aesthetics. Uh, some of my po- some of the pointers. Oh, they have an asymmetric blowhole position. That's so, weird. So most. Whales and dolphins and such, their blowhole uh, is perfectly in the in the center of their body, right? Where you would expect it to be, reasonably. Right. And usually towards the front. With sperm whales, their blowhole is slightly to the left of center. Weird. Yeah. Why? I couldn't find a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking maybe, I don't know, this is just com- pure conjecture, but maybe all that stuff in their head caused it to grow differently. I don't know. Very strange. Yeah. Nature's weird. So if you ever see a picture of them, uh, you, you'll notice that their their blowhole is like slightly on the side. It's just not quite lined up. Yeah. It's like a, an ocarina. <laughs> <laughs> My next note on aesthetics was their big old head, which accounts for one third of their total length. 
Really? Yes. A third of their body length is head. That is an impressive <laughs> noodle. <laughs> Which I can relate to. Yeah, I, got a, I got a big old noggin. We're two for two in the Weatherford family. I got a big <laughs> head too. It's okay. Neither of us can buy hats. Some have compared it to a grapefruit on a toothpick. Who has compared it to that? <laughs> they know. <laughs> Do they listen to the show? One of them. <laughs> Is it your mom? No. <laughs> Moving on. Their jaw seems a little peculiar to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's just because it's in combination with their head. Like the jaw is not strangely sized, but in comparison to its head, it seems pretty small. Like it's very narrow compared to the, the overall head. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the teeth there. They have 20 to 26 pointed teeth on their lower jaw. And then they have teeth on the upper jaw, but they rarely even break through the gums. Huh. Yeah. That's not as many teeth as I would have expected yeah. for an animal that big. They're they're just big teeth. And oh. they're they're meant to grab onto slippery things and that's it. Okay. Uh I mentioned their little flippers already and their dor- and their dorsal fin. This sounds like a cartoon whale. <laughs> you the mental image that you're painting is a caricature of a whale. Well, and it's so strange like all these features are so unique to this species that if you were to draw anything even close to those characteristics, people will know what you're drawing, right? <laughs> True. Aren't they super wrinkly, too? They have a couple wrinkles, I think, just behind the head. I'm not sure, though. Sure. I think of them also as being, like, kind of gnarly, like, covered in, like, barnacles and stuff. Is this not them? Uh, I don't know. I didn't see anything about barnacles, but it wouldn't surprise me. Maybe that's just something I assume all whales have. (laughs) Yeah. So moving on to some miscellaneous information. Their conservation status with the IUCN is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, So, of course, you know, back in the day when whaling was more prominent, their numbers were reduced pretty severely. But nowadays, you know, whaling is not so common. Um, It's thought that they're doing better, but uh, still listed as vulnerable. There hasn't been a study on their exact numbers in quite some time. Things that they're vulnerable against are vessel strikes, for one thing. So earlier I mentioned, you know, after they're done diving, they come up to the surface to rest. So that puts them at risk of being hit by a large cargo ship, especially in today's age where there's a lot of traffic out there on the ocean. So there's that. And ocean noise can interfere with them because that's what they use to communicate and then also thought to use echolocation for finding food. So it's thought that maybe that could induce stress and also cause them to change their hunting habits and locations that they are found in. And also maybe just like make them less effective at finding their prey. True. Severe ocean noise can result in hearing loss. Mm, yeah. Poor babies. Yeah. They're, of course, you know, vulnerable to climate change, but also pollution and ocean debris. So, of course, unfortunately, you know, when we open up a dead sperm whale, one of the things we'll find is trash, plastic, that kind of thing. Moving on to the reproduction. I thought it was interesting. So they have a 14 to 16 month gestation period. Wow. <laughs> hate it a female can produce a single calf once every five to seven years so they're not exactly pumping them out sure yeah they need to rest they were just (laughs) pregnant for over a year give them like a minute (laughs) but always one too so it's not like they're giving a a whole litter out there well those babies are so big they're pretty big how are you gonna fit more than one in there I couldn't talk about the sperm whale without, you know, at least mentioning the classic novel Moby Dick. 
For those unfamiliar, this is a, a novel about a whaler named Ahab and his crew who hunt an albino sperm whale. And supposedly that whale is based on a real whale called Mocha Dick. Okay. All right. All right. That's all I have to say about that. Thank you. And then finally, I wanted to talk about something you may already be aware of, a substance called ambergris. Ambergris? Yes. I can see the word in my mind's eye in that I feel like I have encountered this word before. I have no further information on it. So it is a waxy substance that forms around squid beaks and other hard objects in the stomach of sperm whales. This is something that their stomach produces? Yes. Okay. The idea is it does this so that that hard object, whatever it is, can be passed more easily, either through vomiting or just defecation. Okay. Now, this substance is extremely valuable. Why? (laughs) So, it's valued by the perfume industry, actually. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Why, though? It's it's used in the creation of high-end perfumes. Really? Yep. Does it smell good? I mean, in the context that they are using it for, yes. (laughs) It couldn't possibly. There's no way that a substance that comes from the innards of a whale that eats fish and squid all day long (laughs) and poops them out. There's no way that any part of that smells good. Probably not when you find it in the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but why would you encounter that and think, hmm, I'm sure there's some process I could use to make this smell really, really good. I don't know. Why even bother? (laughs) (laughs) You'll see references to this in different media. Uh, My most memorable one is Futurama. They they talked about this one time. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Humans are weird, man. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, to make it interesting, this, this substance floats. So usually when you pe- when people find it, it has been floating at sea for very long and it has washed up to a shore somewhere. Does this mean that sperm whale poop floats? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nasty. <laughs> and that is the sperm whale. Excellent. That's a great whale. It is. It's a good whale. A big one. It just, I mean, when I, I say it was within one vote of this one <laughs> claiming victory over the humpback whale in our polls. Maybe another day, humpback whale. We'll come back for you, buddy. It's okay. We'll be back. Yeah. We're not going anywhere. We got lots of animals to go through, y'all. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, thank you, Christian, for that great segment. And thank you to the listener, the person listening to this show for spending all this time with us. Um, we really appreciate you. You're the best. You're the reason we keep making this show. And you can connect with us and hang out with us in the virtual online space, either on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search the title of the show and you will find us. We have a really happening uh, Facebook group where people act fools all the time and uh, they're not to be trusted. (laughs) (laughs) If you have an animal species you want to hear us review, you can submit those to us. You can either shoot me an email. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com or you can just hit us up on social media and those requests will get to us as well, I promise. And finally, just to wrap up, I want to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring, which comes off of his album B-Sides, the rest of which is equally incredible. It's good stuff. It's all great. So that's everything I had for this particularly raunchy episode. (laughs) This one had a weird vibe. Yeah, I like it. This is a funky episode. I hope everyone else likes it too.
We can only hope. <laughs> Let's just keep our fingers crossed. Please don't unsubscribe. Bye. Bye.